Well, the uh, first Sunday we showed that video, it was 30 seconds long, and we've covered a lot of ground this summer in the book of Acts. Um, so thanks for participating with us. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church. My honor to be one of uh, the teachers and just so looking forward to <clears throat> uh, what's going to unfold today. This fall makes the 18-year anniversary of the glorious fall of 1998, when I had the honor and privilege to suit up as quarterback for the Oliver Springs Bobcats. And uh, week two was pretty special. We were uh, playing Jellico. Jellico had an all-state running back named Tommy. And I promise you, I'm not uh, making a fake episode of Friday Night Lights up here. This really happened. Uh, <clears throat> the score is tied. It's uh, 20 to 20. And we'll work on it here. Uh, it's 20 to 20. The ball is at the 50-yard line. It's uh, uh, 27 seconds left in the fourth quarter, and I drop back to pass. The uh, left defense end gets a pretty clean run on me, about a stand in the pocket. Casey White, my wide receiver, runs a post pattern, gets behind the safety. I lace this perfect pass to him. He catches it, touchdown. We win the game. People run on the field. I'm a hero for one week. <clears throat> because the next week, we played the North City High School. And I turned the ball. There we go. Some uh, Lenore Sidians getting excited here. Uh, the next week, I turned the ball over twice inside the 30-yard line, and it resulted in 14 points for them. We lost by 14, and so I was devastated. Um, I'm sitting in the locker room after the game. Uh, I, I don't even have my shoulder pads off. I'm by far the last player ready to leave. And I remember my head coach, Coach Frank Johnson, walking up to me. And he puts his hands on my shoulder pads and he looks deeply into my eye and he says, son, if you play like that, we won't win a game. <laughs> it's like, where's the encouragement at, coach? Here's the truth. He was right. And this was long before the age of coddling. And so coach went on to explain to me that I had a role to play that it was imperative that I not turn the ball over, that for my team to be successful, I was going to have to take care of the ball. Now, there's the other side of this story. It's uh, 18 years later, and somewhere out in Oliver Springs, uh, the next crop of Bobcat football players are preparing uh, for this fall. Some other kid's going to wear number 10, some other kid's going to play quarterback, and do you know how many stories they will hear about me in that game against Jellico? Zero. Nada. All my coaches have long since retired. Nobody's talking about the fall of 98. It is just going to be completely normal without me. Now, you say, what, what is the point you're trying to make here? here here's, here's the point I want us to see today. Um, my life matters. Uh, I have a role to play in the story of God, but it's not my story. It's God's story. My life has value. I was created in the image of God. So were you. There's intrinsic worth in who you are. And yet at the same time, a hundred years from now, neither I nor you will be remembered by our descendants. They'll be struggling to find their name. Maybe the website ancestry.com will still be around and they can go find us. But for the most part, will long be forgotten. And I know what some of you are thinking, Brad, this really isn't encouraging. What are you, what are, what are, what's the point you're trying to make here? Here's the, here's the point. We can live for that which will live on after we're gone, 
or we can live for that which will be gone when we take our last breath. We can create our own story, play the lead role, be the executive producer in our very small personal movie, or we can be an extra on the set of God's grand and glorious story that he's been writing from years gone by and he will continue to write into all eternity. Hopefully one of the things you got from that video and hopefully one of the things you've gotten from the book of Acts is that the roots of what we're a part of go long before us and they'll go long after us. In last week's sermon, we saw Paul address the Ephesian elders. And this was a difficult moment for Paul as he, he said goodbye to them. He knew he was heading into Jerusalem and he knew when he got in Jerusalem, difficulty and affliction waited. Sure enough, he's there in Jerusalem, not 10 days, and he's arrested. And if it had not been for some Roman soldiers coming and intervening, he would have been ripped to pieces. But they come, and they get him, and they begin to head towards the barracks. And Paul says, whoa, as badly beaten as he was, he says, says, stop for a moment. And he begins to tell his testimony that even though he was this law-abiding keeper of the law, and even though he was a terrorist towards Christians, God showed up and intervened into his life, and he told the story of how Jesus saved him. Long story short, Paul ends up in front of several Roman councils and eventually makes his appeal, as his right was, to go before Caesar. Several hundred miles, a winter, 14 days in a storm, he arrives in Rome, and we see just a little snippet of his time in Rome in the book of Acts chapter 28. And in Acts chapter 28, the last couple of verses, there's only two verses that really give much reference to what he did there in Rome. But I want us to take a look at these couple of verses and then also some other things historically about it as we see our place and our role in the story. In Acts 28, verse number 30, you can follow along on the screen or on your tablet, on your paper Bible. Here's what the scripture says. He, the apostle Paul lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, this is where Luke concludes the story, but this is not where the story ends. Other biblical evidence and other historical documents would point to the fact that it was in this two years of Rome where Paul was teaching the Christian believers in Rome that he ended up coming face to face with Caesar. And we don't have a whole lot to describe what that meeting looked like, but for just a few moments this morning, would you consider with me what it was like when Paul stood before Caesar. Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Grammaticus. His full name in Latin, most commonly known as Nero or Caesar Nero or the Emperor Nero and the Apostle Paul. The contrast between Nero and the Apostle Paul is really quite quite significant. Nero is the most powerful man in the world, the emperor of Rome, Paul, the preacher and pastor for Jesus Christ. Nero was the last in the line of the Caesar's dynasty that began with Julius and went on to Augustine all the way to him. And his time spent as as emperor was known for its lavishness, his extravagance, his massive acquiring of wealth, his consolidating of power. Some historians would even indicate that Nero 
When he burned part of the aristocrat area of Rome, he builds his palace with three mile-long porticos. And uh, a portico was that Roman structure that we've probably all seen with the giant pillars, this really massive, impressive structure. He has three of them a mile long. Uh, Other historians would, would indicate that pearls would be crushed and used to adorn the dessert plates for Nero at his dinner. Most people say that he never wore the same garment twice. I mean, he was a man of wealth. Paul, on the other hand, spent much of his time in prison, in stocks, and in chains. And would have to write to his friend Timothy and say, Timothy, would you bring me a coat so that I can stay warm in the winter? Nero's power was so foreboding uh, foreboding that he would write letters to people whom he felt had wronged him or he was merely annoyed at. And he would urge them in those letters to, for those people to commit suicide and they would oblige. Even Seneca, pretty renowned Roman philosopher, Nero's tutor and his advisor, Nero got the idea, which most historians disagree with, that, that uh, Seneca was trying to devise a plot against him. Nero writes to him and says, hey, take your own life, and Seneca does it. We know about Paul's letters. Most of them commanded uh, his followers to live lives of humility. He wrote about love. He wrote about giving up power for the sake of others. Nero would arrange various games. He was famous for this, uh, initiating these different gladiator games where he would ride his, he loved to be being this idea of being this great chariot racer and he would stage for all the races for him to win. On one occasion, he came in disguised, one of the senators beat him, and he had the senator beheaded. He thought of himself as a great artist and poet and singer, and he would gather audiences, hire them to hang out in the Colosseum or the various theaters where he would perform and they would be paid to give him applause. The Apostle Paul's ambitions were much different. His goal was to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known to the world. Nero, Nero, eventually wanting to expand his lavishness again, sets fire to portion of, a portion of Rome. He blames the fire on the Christians, igniting persecutions towards Christians. And Nero wasn't just a man of lavish wealth. He was a man of lavish and extravagant tyranny. Most accounts indicate that Nero would wrap Christians in animal skins cover them in oil or wax and light them and use them as human torches in the streets while he would ride his chariots up and down. But at the height of his tyranny, at the height of his lavish extravagance, a plot began to form against Nero. And Nero's at the Greece at the time when he gets messengers that, hey, there's a, there's a conspiracy brewing and he heads back to Rome, hoping he can get a hold of his Roman military and squash the coup. But the, the military is part of the coup, and the Praetorian Guard says, forget it, Nero, you're, you're on your own. Nero loses it. He does everything he can to try to manipulate and find ways to stay alive. He, he asks, hey, could I maybe just be given a province in Egypt and live? But he's declared an enemy of the state. Uh, the people who are loyal to Gaius are coming after him, and he flees Rome, And he he hides out in one of his former slaves' little villas where the thought of him losing all that he ever had causes him to go mad 
and he wants to take his own life, but he doesn't, can't muster up the courage. And, he, and, and as the legend has it, he puts the dagger up to his neck and asks his colleague to do it for him. And there the Roman soldiers come in and find Nero's last breath. And Nero ends his life that was a pursuit of extravagance, a pursuit of himself, and a pursuit of glory in disgrace. But shortly before Nero died, the Apostle Paul also met his end. Most people believe that Nero had ordered the beheading of Paul. But before Paul's execution, Paul seemed to know it was coming. And he wrote to Timothy and described Timothy's feelings. And we find that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, here's what Paul says as he begins to reflect about his own end. He says to Timothy, Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is Old Testament language that's illustrating this sacrifice, this emptying of himself. I am already being poured out as this sacrificial offering and the time of my departure has come. But he says to Timothy, Timothy, I I fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all of those who have loved his appearing. What Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, my time has come to an end, and I'm okay with it. The, the race that I wrote and told you about a couple of years ago, I have run that race. I have finished my course. I have done and fulfilled what God has called me to fulfill. Timothy, I don't want you to worry about me. I don't want you to fret about me. Timothy, there is something long after this life that is lasting, that is forever, that I'm about to face. Timothy, I have done all that I have done. And so, Timothy, you be faithful as I've demonstrated what faithfulness looks like to you. Man, what a contrast of lives between Nero and Paul. What a contrast in deaths between Nero and Paul and what a contrast in legacies between Nero and Paul. Today, you might name your dog Nero, but Paul, you'll name a beloved son, Paul, right? We do have a Paul in here. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, the president of the United States quoted the apostle Paul at a funeral of slain officers. And my guess is that for most of us, unless you have had a lot of first century Roman history, you probably learned more about Nero than you ever knew today. The Roman Empire is long extinct, yet the ruins in the Roman Colosseum, where men like Nero would use Christians as toys in the hands of gladiators, in the hands of pagan emperors, in that arena where Christians were martyred, hang some very interesting symbols. Here's what you'll see in the Roman Colosseum. You'll see crosses that hang and that stand in the gate of the emperor's entrance. I've got a closer up picture if you can't see that one. These are pictures a friend of mine took a couple years ago when his family went on vacation. And when you see the crosses in the middle of the Roman Colosseum, it's hard to miss the irony, right? 
This is the place where the the Roman Empire and the mighty emperor tried to snuff out this little band, this little cult called Christianity. They referred to it as the way. This is the place where they tried to do away with it, yet there in that same place where the Roman emperor is gone stands a cross as a testimony to something that is not gone, to something that has gone on. Like Paul and so many others, we can live for that which will live on, or like Nero, we can live for that which will be gone when we take our final breath. We can be the featured character and author of our own little story, which is what Nero lived to do, or we can be an extra like the Apostle Paul and so many of the people that we've seen throughout the book of Acts and be on the stage of God's glorious and eternal grand story that he's been writing for all eternity. Now, some of you are going to think, but Brad, I'm no Paul. I am anything but the Apostle Paul. And here's what I want you to hear today. It wasn't the Apostle Paul. It wasn't the Apostle Paul that made it happen. Paul went into the ground. Paul's life was taken from him, but it did nothing to slow down the multiplying movement of God, the multiplying work of the gospel all across Europe, all across Rome, in Jerusalem and beyond. But you know what? Maybe our role will be a little bit more like Ananias. If we go back to Acts chapter 9, where we were at a few weeks ago, if you'll remember, here's was Ananias' role in the story. God spoke to Ananias and he said, Ananias, provide hospitality for a man named Saul. And through the Holy Spirit's empowered work, that act of hospitality on the part of Ananias helped change the rest of the world. Because Ananias played his role. You see, after Nero, for another 250 years, Christians faced persecution. And even after Nero, in some ways, it it escalated all the way from Diocletian to Domination. But 250 years after Nero, in the midst of persecution, the church continued to thrive and it continued to multiply. And all of a sudden, approximately half of the Roman Empire had been converted to Christianity and Constantine jumps on board. And whether his conversion is legitimate or not, I don't know, but Constantine becomes a follower of Jesus and in 313, through the Edict of Milan, he uh, uh, announces and proclaims religious freedom throughout the Roman Empire. And persecution ends and all of a sudden churches and pastors are able to operate in the public with the blessing of the Roman Empire. But Constantine's life eventually ends, and another name, Julian, becomes emperor after him. Julian's nickname, historically, is Julian the Apostate. And Julian felt like the thing that was really hurting Rome is Rome had lost its roots, its sense of who they were, and they needed to go back to its pagan roots. They needed to go back to its uh, uh, worship of pagan gods. And, but here's what Julian understood. Julian was a philosopher, he was a historian, and he was a very prolific letter writer. And Julian understood through the arc of history that persecution had done nothing to diminish Christianity. It had actually caused it to flourish. And so here was Julian's strategy. He funded from the government the building and the uh, uh, spreading of pagan temples throughout the Roman Empire, and he employed pagan priests to go and serve and do their work. 
But no matter how much effort and no matter how many facilities and no matter how much money they threw at trying to restore paganism, it never would take root in Rome again. And matter of fact, Julian wrote a letter to one of his pagan priests. That letter survived antiquity. I don't want to read to you just a brief portion of Julian writing to one of his pagan priests, offering his complaint about the Christian movement. And here's what Julian says. He says, recent Christian growth is caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and, watch this, by their benevolence towards strangers. This is a pagan emperor writing about what he sees in the Christian community in Rome around 350 AD. I think, he says, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. Now, these weren't Galileans. This was his derogatory way of describing men and women who were following the ways of Jesus of Galilee. He said, they devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans, check out this, support not only their poor, but ours as well. And everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Here's what Julian observed. He said, people who say they follow Jesus, they have a moral character and they take care of people who don't even believe and hold the same values as them. And what was happening right now in this moment in the Roman Empire in history is they had observed as plagues would come in and people would get sick and begin to die by the thousands. The pagans and the economic elite would leave the city and the Christians would stay by and risk their own life to take care for people who were not a part of their church, who didn't believe what they believed or hold the same moral values that they held. And the Emperor Julian says, we can't compete with that. We just can't compete with it. And never did again. So now we get to play a part in the story. How do we play our role in the story? Here's the reality is through the centuries, it has not been huge epic moments that have propelled the church through. It has been really small, mostly anonymous opportunities for faithful obedience. So today, if you go to your favorite restaurant for lunch after church, you can ask your server, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? We're gonna pray for our meal today. My family, we, we, we we're coming here after church. We just wanna, how can we pray for you? And then you can go back to that restaurant a couple of weeks later, identify that same person and say, hey, how's it going? Remember, I, asked, I wanted to pray for you a couple of weeks ago. I just wanna see, how's that going? How are you doing? We can invite people into our house, strangers, maybe people that we don't typically hang out with, people who are different from us, people who are from different social, economic, or racial areas, and we can invite them into our homes and demonstrate hospitality and demonstrate kindness and model what 1,700 years ago a pagan emperor said cannot compete with everything else that's going on. An unbeliever can go wakeboarding with a group of men from our church and leave that going home and say, you know what? Maybe I was wrong about Christians. They're not all bad. I love a story that one of our church 
leaders gave of their, uh, they were in their neighborhood pool and they're talking to one of their neighbors and subject to faith and where you go to church comes up and then she found out she went to Fellowship Church Pellissippi that meets in Carnes High School. The person she was talking to happened to be a teacher here who calls across the pool to another teacher and says, hey, this family goes to that church that cares for us so well. That's playing your role in the story. Today, in just a few moments, my daughter's going to get baptized out here. And I've benefited from dozens of volunteers who have shown up since she was two years old and proclaimed to her that Jesus died for her sins and wants to be her rescuer and her savior. And so for those of you who show up here every morning, Elvin, when you show up here and you put together those walls in that kid's area, you're not putting up walls in the kid's area. You're playing your role in the story. Judy, when you go and you spend a weekend at a deeper still retreat, being honest about your story, you're not just going to retreat. You're playing your role. In the story, Austin, when you share the love of Jesus with your employer and you care for him and you say, I pray for you, boss, you play your role in the story. When we do the things that God has called us to do, when we do the things that he's put in front of us to do, we play our role in the story and we live for that which lives on long after we're gone. And so you and I, we've got a role to play. We've got a role to play. If you're not in the game, man, you want to get in the game. If you're in the game and you're weary, it's okay to ask the coach for a breather, get some water. But no, you don't want to get out in the game. You don't want to get out of the game. Because 100 years from now, I don't know what America looks like. 100 years from now, I doubt we're going to use iPads or whatever it is that we want today. But 100 years from now, if Jesus hasn't decided to set up his kingdom, men and women all across this globe will be telling the story of a man named Paul, a man named Ananias, a guy named Peter. And there will be churches that exist. There will be people pursuing Jesus, worshiping Jesus, putting their hope and faith in Jesus. Because God's story will go on. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to be a part of what you're doing, to be able to play a role in the story. Thank you, Jesus, so much for loving us enough and caring for us enough that you would send your son who would die on a cross. And the only explicable reason that these men and women, that Paul would stand before people who wanted to rip him apart, that Peter would boldly proclaim to a group who didn't necessarily agree with what he was teaching, the only reason that they would do that is because of the resurrection. So thank you for not only dying for our sins, but for rising again and demonstrating to the world that you are the divine son of God come to seek and save that which is lost. Lord, help us to play our role. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, church, we've got a role to play individually, but we also have a role to play corporately as a church. Today, there are people here in Knoxville finding life in Jesus, experiencing joy and meeting, because three years ago, Fellowship Church sent out people and resources to North Knoxville and planted in that community. And then 17 months ago, said goodbye to other people and said goodbye to more resources and birthed 
this campus, this church here in the Carnes Hardin Valley community, but it doesn't end with us. We get to participate with what God's doing on down the road. And so I want to introduce you to, you guys know Kyle Landis, our lead pastor, and I'm going to let you, let him introduce to you the next chapter in Pellissippi or in fellowship history. Uh, this is Jonathan. Give him a hand while he's up here. Uh, so let's start with this. Um, you, you know we've got a mission of multiplication here at Fellowship Church. And so those of you who were along for the ride when Pellissippi got launched, you probably sense the tension that Jonathan and people who are currently praying about where are we going next for our next campus. And so, Jonathan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, of course, introduce this incredible family you've got here, too. Uh, goodness, it's uh, really good to be with you this morning. And so good morning, and uh, it's been a great morning so far. Uh, I'm Jonathan Overholzer. I grew up in a family of six. I've lived in all over the place, done a little bit of a lot of different things. And, you know, I wish somebody would have told me, but God gave me this gift about this whole falling in love thing after I didn't uh, believe in love anymore because of a broken heart. I had kind of given up. Um, I came across and met my wife, uh, Jennifer, and you know how I knew that she was the one? It's because I felt like I was getting the best deal, and in response to my offering of that communication, she said, now I'm getting the best deal, and so there was so much goodness in that. That's my wife, uh, Jennifer, uh, and our three kids. Uh, my oldest is Joanna. She's about to be seven, and she can tell you exactly how many minutes it is until that happens. Uh, my next one is Joy. She's about to be five, and she's looking forward to being able to chew gum as a five-year-old. And my youngest is Jalen. She's, she's 17 months, and he's, she has to have one of the craziest cheese faces um, of anyone I've seen, so she loves to, uh, to do that. Jennifer and I have been married for 10 years and are really grateful for the family that we have. Hey, do you guys want to wave to everybody down there so they know who you are? Just wave to them. There they are. Okay. They like you. We're so glad that you, you guys are here. John, so Jonathan is, is leading Fellowship Church, not just Pellissippi, but we invest as multiple campuses in future church planting. And so Jonathan is launching us into our next church plants. And so he's been praying and, and seeing what God's laying on his heart, who the people is that God's called him to go to. And so um, what I want to do for just a few minutes as I introduce you to him, you won't see him a lot because he'll be at our Middlebrook campus uh, building his future team uh, to go where they go next. But what I want to do, Jonathan, is give us a couple minutes about your journey from kind of when you maybe got into ministry and how that's led to fellowship. Yeah, so I, I grew up uh, as a pastor's kid, kind of raised on the knees of other pastors and missionaries. And I can remember really clearly uh, being able to distinguish this faith thing, although I didn't understand it, I kept hearing missionaries and pastors talk about things that were unexplainable in real time. And faith was the thing that was constantly being credited. And I just grew up with that kind of an idea. Um, and the pastors and missionaries and people I knew that were really walking by faith were my heroes. Um, I couldn't explain that. It was just something that God put in my heart, and so I'm really grateful uh, for that. All, all throughout the years, I've just had so many opportunities to be able to 
um, continue to learn that. That's the hard thing, right? It's easy for us to sit in church and talk about faith in Jesus. The hard thing is to walk out of the doors and to live differently and to find God constantly in that challenge. So that makes up the majority of my life is just really learning to walk by faith, really inviting God into the real nitty-gritty details of my life. Um, so that's been a lot of different professional jobs in vocational ministry. It's also been a number of different jobs in the professional uh, world. And uh, um, about four years ago, I started getting so uncomfortable in a really profound way and just started this wrestling match, grappling match with God about, God, what's the most effective way for me to live my life? Um, if the church is multiplying because of joy, and I'm supposed to be a part of that, and my role, what is my role? What does that look like? And so I'm really grateful to have made contact with um, a couple of guys over at Fellowship without, I wasn't looking for a job, I wasn't looking for anything, I was looking to clarify my role, um, motivated really by joy because of what Jesus has done for me. And connected with Kyle, and if you, uh, you're familiar with Kyle, things, things can move quickly, and so I was grateful for that uh, because I had an opportunity to figure out how to answer some of the big questions I had. And so after a period of almost a year of working with Kyle and uh, the other leaders at Middlebrook and the other churches being able to, to clarify about God's calling and our role being to help launch um, and lead our next, uh, our next campus. Um, it's such a joy because I remember the first time I met Jonathan, uh, I remember we, we sat down with him, just heard from his heart and he got up and walked off. And, uh, I was just, I just sat there with my mouth open. Like this is the kind of guy that God is bringing to fellowship to help continue to move the movement in multiplication. So, uh, just such a joy to get to work with you now, um, and it did take a year, so it wasn't like super fast. So let's not. Let's see. Um, but why don't you share with us? So, so you've been with Fellowship now for several months. What's God been laying on your heart? What's God been teaching you here in the last couple months? I wrote down a few, uh, a few things that I observed here this morning. couple of different things that seem to oppose each other at times, but I think don't oppose each other at all. Um, and that is these two truths of our humanity and how it constantly crashes into divinity, right? God invites us to come and to be forgiven, to be remade, to be made new, to walk in his grace and all these things that bring us to the end of ourselves. And yet, our humanity is also there. And so those things coexist. The thing I, that I'm learning more than anything is that in order for the church to be able to find uh, effective expressions in our world that's changing so quickly is that I, I have to be really clear about who I am and who God's made me to be. And the song we sang this morning, I thought I would just remind you of some of the things that we sang so well. And Casey and the team, thank you for leading us um, well. But it tells a story. This is what I'm learning as I launch out on this crazy adventure. Um, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Who lives that way? 
that your hope is anchored just in Jesus and what he has done. That's a different kind of life. When darkness seems to hide his face, I've experienced a lot of that in my life, I rest in, on his unchanging grace. It gives direction, right? It tells us what our role is in the mission is focusing on the unchanging nature of that ridiculous grace that God gives. Probably the clearest thing I could say about what God is teaching me and what he's doing is the third part of the song that we sang that says, the weak being made strong in the the Savior's love. And that just continually wrecks me. It wrecks me because when I shine myself up and come in front of you or anybody else and say, man, I got something to offer. I've really worked hard on this. Check me out. I got my stuff together. Then I'm forgetting the brokenness that I've been forgiven of and that I'm being healed of. And it really is the picture of weakness being made strong, not because of my strength, but because of this grace thing that we talk about and have a hard time getting a grip on. Um, Through the storm, he is Lord of all. And I think in the end, being dressed in his righteousness, like a robe that covers over all the shameful, embarrassing, dark, and guilt-ridden things that I don't want you to know about. He's in this process of multiplying the church, and the joy part of it is that I get to be a part of it. And it's just ridiculous. It's just so good. And so as my family and I, as we launch out into this great adventure, the greatest adventure of our lives, um, that's what is empowering us. Thanks a lot for sharing that. How great is this guy, right? Such a blessing to have him. There you go. The, the truth is, is that, uh, man, Brad set up perfectly. What, what role are each of us going to play? Some of us can remember two years ago, we were sitting at another campus. We were learning about a future church plant that was going to take place, and we were praying, God, are you calling me to go? And so maybe this morning, some of you are sitting here saying the same thing. God, are you, are you putting it in my heart to go to our next campus? And uh, so th- that's the beauty of what we get to do. We get to spread the gospel. We all get to see where has God uniquely designed us to play the role that he's called for us through his spirit to be able to impact our community, our neighbors. So uh, I know there will be a day where we will stand on this stage and we will launch a church planning team to go. And so today we get the blessing of launching uh, one of our next church leaders. And so here's, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to pray. I've got a few of you that would like you to come down and just lay hands on Jonathan and his family. And uh, we'll pray and we'll, we'll move on from here. So.